one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in to the episode 418 of the podcast. Hall of America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, August 16, 2021, people. We are inching closer and closer and closer to college football. Normally this time of year, there's no way I would lead with anything other than college football. But this is the first episode since that Field of Dreams baseball game. I know a ton of you watched it. Just really quickly want to react to that. I thought it was one of the coolest sports things that I have seen in a long time. Talk about the game. Talk about what can other sports do and what, frankly, can Major League Baseball do to replicate that? Because, again, I thought that was about the coolest thing that I have seen in a long time. We'll open with the Field of Dreams. Dreams. From there, we'll switch gears and really dive into college football. First of all, a little bit of a busy week. We're starting to get news out of training camps. Notre Dame, Michigan, Kentucky, all named starting quarterbacks. And then what we'll do is we'll do a quick look ahead to the SEC. I think over these next few episodes, we'll kind of do one conference at a time. Pick a conference, what do you need to know, teams to watch, things like that. As I always tell you, this is that time of year where you kind of got to start getting your brain back into, oh yeah, LSU did that last year. Notre Dame did this. Michigan stunk. Uh, and so we will look at the SEC, look at some things and storylines that came out of this weekend with the quarterbacks. And then from there, one of my favorite college football guests will join us, Cole Kublick, ESPN, SEC Network, SEC Network Radio. Cole Kublick is a guy, you know, I'll just say this, is you can hear in his voice the passion and love that he has for college football. I think he and I really bonded at this time last year when we weren't sure, frankly, if there was going to be college football being played. It was about a year ago now that the Big Ten and Pac-12 canceled their seasons. And I think Cole and I were two of the few voices that really pushed very, very, very hard to get college football in. So Cole Kublick will join us at the end of the show. Really fun conversation, long conversation, about a half an hour long. We talk about the SEC. We talk about LSU, Georgia, Texas and Oklahoma, what does it mean? Cole Kublick will join us at the end of the show. But let's get to the topic of the day. And I'll tell you this. It is not very often that I talk baseball on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. We are on episode 418, and if you've listened religiously from the beginning, you know not a ton of baseball on this show. I think one time about three years ago when the show first launched, Nick Coffey was a regular guest, co-host, whatever. I seem to remember the Dodgers being in the playoffs. I seem to remember yelling and screaming and swearing and turning off a bunch. Yeah, I probably lost a bunch of listeners that night, but uh, I really don't talk baseball for, frankly, a few different reasons. I think, one, um, it's just not a sport that I cover on a day-to-day basis, and one thing that you guys know about me, I always try to bring a unique perspective, a fun perspective, but most importantly, an educated perspective. And I just don't have time to follow 30 Major League Baseball teams and and figure out who's hot, who's not, bring out some hot takes, get unique, get interesting, get fun, get this, get that. The second reason is I don't think most of you generally care about Major League Baseball on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. I'm sure many of you love your individual team, whether you're a Reds fan, whether you're a Cubs fan, whether you're a Dodgers fan, a Yankees fan, a Braves fan, but I don't know that many of you are locked in on all 30 teams on any given night. And so it is not a sport I talk about because it is not a sport that really leads itself to being a national talking point. But on last Thursday, 
Major League Baseball did about as well as it possibly could to put itself in the national spotlight to make it relevant for at least one night with the Field of Dreams game, with the the moment that stopped. And listen, I know you guys liked it because it was the highest rated regular season baseball game since 2005. So I know a lot of you watched it. I know a lot of you cared. And I just want to give credit to Major League Baseball for finally doing something right. I want to talk a little bit about the game. And then, as I said, to lead the show, really want to take a moment and think about how could other sports take advantage, maybe do something similar. And of course, how can Major League Baseball use this to hopefully fuel itself uh, to, to basically be in a position where they have these unique one-off things that get us more interested in baseball. In terms of the game itself, listen, again, Major League Baseball doesn't do very much right, but this was about as good as it gets. For those of you who didn't see it live, I'm sure many of you at the very least saw the highlights, and the highlights were just you know breathtaking, really. Uh, it played off, obviously, I'm sure all of you know, Field of Dreams, 1988, a movie that was nominated for Best Picture, they, they built a field in the movie, spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, sorry to spoil a movie that's 30 years old, but spoiler alert, Kevin Costner, of course, builds a baseball field in his field of corn that he owns. He's a corn farmer. Well, Major League Baseball built a field not very far from where that original field was made, where the movie was shot. And of course, they bring in two teams, the Chicago White Sox, who played a very prominent role in the movie, the New York Yankees, who resonate with everybody, and they played a baseball game. And I thought everything that Major League Baseball did on that night, and credit to Fox, I obviously work for Fox Sports Radio, had nothing to do with this game, but uh, I, think, I thought both did an incredible job. Whether it was um, you know, having Kevin Costner there to narrate some stuff, whether it was James Earl Jones narrating things coming in and out of commercial breaks, whether it was the players walking out of the cornfield, whether it was the home run in the cornfield to win the game. I know Major League Baseball couldn't control that. The announcers wearing old school gear and bow ties and hats and uh, trousers and whatever. I just thought the ambiance was perfect. And so in terms of why it worked, in terms of why we cared, two reasons come to mind for me as to why it was so cool uh, and you know why we need to credit Major League Baseball. First of all, one, like I said, it touched all the feels. It hit all the feels. And one thing about sports, we get nostalgic about sports, right? We lo- everyone loved sports growing up for whatever reason. Many of us think sports was better back in the day, whatever, da, da, da. But Major League Baseball specifically does nostalgia very well, and this movie specifically makes you feel nostalgic. And the fact that they were able to take so many elements of this movie, to it just made you, it just made you feel good inside, right? When the players are walking out of the corn, when you hear the music. Didn't everybody just want to call their dad and say, Dad, can I have, let's go have a catch in the backyard. It made you feel good. It made you feel nostalgic for baseball, for the movie, etc. The other thing that I think it did really well, which a lot of great sporting events do, right? Part of the Super Bowl is not the game itself. Your wife, your husband, whomever that maybe isn't a sports fan, your son, your daughter, they don't just watch the Super Bowl to see uh, the Bucks versus the Chiefs and what, what did the Chiefs run on third down. No, they watch the Super Bowl because of the commercials. They watch the Super Bowl because of the halftime act. They watch the Super Bowl because of the pregame. They watch the Super Bowl because of the puppy bowl leading into the Super Bowl. And that's what I thought this game for Major League Baseball did so well, was they hit on all of the little things outside of the game itself. So just as an example, you didn't have to be a baseball fan to watch. And again, as an example, 
My wife was walking through the room when this game started. She has seen uh, Field of Dreams in large part because I forced her to, whether she wanted to or not. She loves the movie, and she sat down and watched a little bit with me. She's not a White Sox fan. She's not a Yankees fan. Heck, I'm not a White Sox fan or a Yankees fan. But to me, again, the, the, the visual elements of it made me feel nostalgic, reminded me of the movie, of how much I loved that movie. My wife loved the way that the players were dressed and the old school uniforms, the way the announcers were dressed. And so just, again, credit Major League Baseball because I think what this did was it hit the feels and it hit everybody. You didn't have to be a baseball fan to watch. You didn't have to be a diehard. You didn't have to be breaking down uh, the pitch count from Lance Lynn or whatever to really enjoy this game. I do think coming out of it came a very interesting question as well, which is how can Major League Baseball capitalize on this, do unique stuff? And then more importantly, I thought it was really interesting. There were a lot of other sports writers in other sports sitting there saying, how can my sport do something like this? I saw NFL writers saying, that was great. I haven't watched a baseball game in forever, myself included. Aaron Torres, I have not watched a, as much of a regular season Major League Baseball game as I did with this. And I think you saw a lot of NFL writers saying, what can we do? NBA writers saying, what can we do? College football, college basketball, etc. And so what I want to do now is take a couple minutes to discuss what can other sports do to replicate this? And then on top of that, what can Major League Baseball do to do more unique one-off events that get us tuned in, get us locked in as a national audience? In terms of other sports, look, I think there are certain sports that we really don't need very much of this, right? I think it worked for baseball because baseball is a sport that the entire season goes so long, it's hard to have one game stand out amongst all others. But I don't think that all these other sports need it, right? Like college football, perfect example. I don't believe that college football needs to do anything different other than what they always do because you only get five or six LSU home games a year. Every LSU home game is a spectacle, so I don't think it makes sense to bring an LSU football game off of LSU's campus. Keep them there, keep the band there, keep the cheerleaders there, keep the tailgate there. It's awesome. Same with Ole Miss, same with Tennessee, same with Ohio State, Michigan, Oklahoma, Georgia, Kentucky, Florida, whatever. I don't think college football needs it. I would kind of say the same with the NFL. We watch the NFL for the players, for the storylines, for the narratives. It's once a week. There's only 17 games in a regular season, up from 16 last year. I don't know that we need that much different in the NFL. And I do believe credit to the NFL. They've actually done a pretty good job of kind of creating unique one-off games, even in the context of their season. They've played games in London, they've played games in Mexico City, and there's other events around NFL games that get the casual fan to tune in. Breast cancer awareness, military awareness, things like that. So college, fo college football, NFL, I don't know that they need it. And I'll say this too, college basketball has actually done a really good job with this. I know a lot of people love to criticize college basketball. They have done an awesome job with the military games. We obviously had the game played on the aircraft carrier many years ago. If you remember, North Carolina played Michigan State on an aircraft carrier in San Diego. Um, you know, we've played games on military bases. We've played games in Alaska, Hawaii, Japan, Germany. Just college basketball does a really good job of doing one-off events. And I'll also say this. The NHL has done a great job with the Winter Classic. Most recently, a game in um, a game in uh, uh, Lake Tahoe on a lake pond hockey. It was really cool. So credit college basketball, credit the NHL for finding unique ways to 
present their product. Uh, and again, we watch some of these college basketball games because it's on an aircraft carrier, because it's unique. Uh, same with NHL, etc. The one sport that I really do think could take advantage of this, though, I do think it's the NBA. And listen, I'm not going to do the whole criticize the NBA for this, criticize the NBA for that, but I do think in some ways a lot of the problems that Major League Baseball has are similar to the NBA. The NBA has 81 regular season games. It starts during football. We kind of don't really pay that much attention, certainly during football season. And then in a regular calendar year, once the Super Bowl ends, we turn our attention to March Madness. So the NBA, I think, is in the same situation as Major League Baseball. What can we do to stand out? What can we do to make our product unique? And I did have a few thoughts for, for the NBA. First of all, uh, you know, again, feel the dreams. It's nostalgic. It's interesting. It's different in baseball. The NBA should play a regular season game at Rucker Park. And I got a little pushback on it, and people said, uh, NBA players will never play on blacktop. Um, these guys can't play one game. And, like, I'm not Mr. Criticize the NBA for everything. But they can't play one game on the blacktop for what would be essentially probably the single most interesting game that you could possibly schedule in an NBA regular season. Imagine the Knicks playing... I don't know, the Brooklyn Nets maybe, Kevin Durant, by the way, a guy that has played at Rucker Park. Rucker Park, by the way, I think most of you know, very scenic, very original, very unique uh, uh, street street ball place in the city of New York. It's a place where all the greats played growing up. Uh, and more recently, Kobe Bryant has played there. Kevin Durant has played there. And I just think you have the chain link fence. Uh, you have the rowdy crowd. I think it would make for an awesome NBA regular season game, a must-watch NBA regular season game. If you're worried a little bit about the weather, I understand the NBA. Um, I understand the NBA, of course, is played from basically November until April. If you don't think you can get in a regular season game at Rucker Park, do it at Venice Beach. Venice Beach has the famous basketball courts made, made again, famous by white men can't jump. Uh, it's worth noting there was actually, there used to be a high school All-American game. The Under Armour All-American game was played at Venice Beach. I, I went to a couple of them when I first moved to L.A. It was, I think, 2012, the summer of, and they had the Under Armour All-American game. Julius Randle played in it. Uh, the Harrison Twins played in it. Um, Aaron Gordon played in it. I can't remember everybody that played in it, but the point is they play games there. They kind of have a makeshift court, and I think that'd be really, really, really cool, of course, in a homage to white men can't jump. If you can't do Rucker Park, figure out a way to get an NBA regular season game there. I don't want to hear that NBA players cannot play on the blacktop. I don't buy it one bit. Lastly, what I would say is this. I do think for Major League Baseball, this should be an eye-opener. This should be an eye-opener that there are ways, even in a 162-game season that starts April 1st and ends October 1st before the playoffs, to stand out to a national audience. Now the job is to capitalize it and make sure you take advantage of what you did and what you're doing to, again, bring in an audience, even if it's only for a night, even if it's only for a weekend, whatever it was, this was so cool, and there's no reason you can't capitalize on it. And what I would also say is this, you can't keep going back to the well, okay? I saw Major League Baseball wants to do this next year. I'm not opposed to doing it next year, but it's never going to be the same as the first time you do it. It's never going to be the same. Chicago White Sox, old school Chicago Black Sox uniforms coming out of the cornfield. I'm sorry. 
it will not be the same uh, when the Tampa Bay Rays are playing the Oakland Athletics uh, in Iowa. I, it'll still be cool. It'll still be fun. But eventually, like everything else, if you go back to that well too many times, it is just not going to be as exciting and fun as the original. The Toronto Blue Jays versus, uh, you know, the Seattle Mariners, I don't know, resonates the same as the Yankees and the White Sox. So I'm not saying Major League Baseball shouldn't do it, but what I do think they should do is consider alternatives and unique one-off setups to play games. One thing that stood out to me, I actually saw this on Twitter. I wish I could give the guy credit. I didn't see who actually put it out there, but it got my brain going. Major League Baseball, I truly believe, should do this. And it's a point that was made on Twitter, so credit to the guy or girl who put this out there. Major League Baseball, the one weakness Major League Baseball has is that Major League Baseball, they have so many games on, uh, on the calendar, right? They have 81 home games, 81 road games, 162 games. That has always been seen as a sign of weakness for Major League Baseball. To me, use it as a sign of strength, and as this gentleman recommended, go ahead and play one home series a year. So you get 81 home games. It would cut you from 81 to 78. Go play one home series a year someplace other than your home ballpark. And what do I mean by that? To me, it could mean a million different things. It could just be taking the show on the road to someplace where you know you have fans. It could be doing a special one-off deal. It could be a lot of variables. Let me give you a few examples. So first of all, buddy of mine hosts radio in Fargo, North Dakota, okay? Uh, he is the sideline reporter, the, the broadcaster for North Dakota State football, which, of course, has had a ton of success. Carson Wentz played there, Easton Stick, who now plays for the Los Angeles Chargers. Really great FCS football program. But when it's not football season, he talks sports like anybody else. And because North Dakota does not have its own professional team, North Dakota has kind of adopted the Minnesota teams. Minnesota, for people who aren't great at geography, I didn't know this until I looked it up. Minnesota borders North Dakota, North Dakota to the west of Minnesota. And so when they cheer on a football Sunday, they cheer for the Minnesota Vikings. When they cheer for an NBA team, they cheer for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And when they cheer in baseball, they cheer for the Minnesota Twins. How can we not get the Minnesota Twins out to Fargo, North Dakota, or South Dakota for one series a year? Now, is it going to have the same effect as the Field of Dreams game? No. But you mean to tell me there isn't a cool spot somewhere in Fargo, North Dakota, that you could not set up a baseball field, get 2,000, 3,000 locals there, and play a really cool series for them? To me, I think it's a great idea, because if you just break it down in its simplest form, what it does is this. It makes something unique and interesting during the regular season in baseball. Are you going to get the ratings that you got for the Field of Dream game? You're not. But at the same time, it will expose Major League Baseball to another part of the country that sometimes that, that does not have it, right? The game in, on Thursday night in Iowa was the first ever Major League Baseball game in Iowa. There were kids that, that can't just get in the car and drive to Chicago or drive to Milwaukee or drive to wherever to watch a Major League Baseball game that got to see Major League Baseball. Aaron Judge was in their hometown. That's pretty freaking cool. So why can't you do it in a situation like that? Why can't the Cincinnati Reds, a lot, we got a lot of fans in Kentucky. Why can't the Cincinnati Reds come play a series in Lexington or Louisville? Expand the brand, get people interested. The Atlanta Braves, why can't they come to the Carolinas? Why can't they come to Nashville, Tennessee for the fans that can't just drive down to Atlanta to see a game? Uh, you know, I'll give you another example. The Boston Red Sox, most of you know, I grew up in Connecticut. Connecticut's kind of a part New York, part Boston state. But the rest of New England is Red Sox country. 
I would argue they're as passionate and diehard in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island as they are in Boston. And so can you not get three games a year up in Maine? The, the Red Sox AA affiliate is, is in Portland, Maine. If the Red Sox played a regular season series in Portland, it would be the single biggest sporting event in the history of the state of Maine. And people will tell, oh, Maine was good in college hockey, this. and It would be the biggest sport, sporting event in the history of Maine. I'm sorry, it would be. There is no doubt about it in my mind. I know some of you say, well, you know, you could drive from Maine to Boston, and many people do. It would still be cool. It would still be great for Major League Baseball. You mean to tell me you wouldn't tune in just to see that little harbor in Maine, just to see what does it look like? They're playing a game in Maine. I've never been to Maine. I want to see what it's like. Again, you just keep going on down the list. The Seattle Mariners, they're right next to the state of Idaho. Seattle, of course, is in Washington, Idaho borders. Build a field next to a mountain. I don't know. Give me a mountain range in the background. I'm watching. The Arizona Diamondbacks play a game somewhere on the grounds of the Grand Canyon. I'm not saying you got to play right up next to the Grand Canyon. You got to hit home runs into the canyon. You got outfielders chasing, uh, you know, home run balls and they're falling into the canyon. But you can't build a field. I, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. I don't have all the answers, but what I'm saying is there has to be ways to make unique one-off games for Major League Baseball that get all of us invested. Buddy of mine, Rich Orenberger, I was hosting on Fox Sports Radio. We actually talked a little bit about this. Rich lives in San Diego. He said, look, man, we got a great military base. Uh, well, well, he was talking about apparently there was a game at Fort Bragg a few years ago, and I said, there's a beautiful military base, Camp Pendleton, that's about a half an hour from San Diego. Get a game on that military base. I don't know how it works. I can't figure out all the logistics for you, Rob Manfred. But if we can play college basketball games on military bases in Alaska, Germany, Japan, whatever, we can figure out a way to play baseball games in unique settings, including um, you know, a military base, maybe on a 4th of July, on a Memorial Day weekend, whatever. Bottom line, listen. I don't have all the answers. I know some of them would not work. I know not all of them would resonate the way the Field of Dreams games resonate. I get all that. But what I am telling you is very simple. Major League Baseball, this was the window. Don't keep going back to the well. Don't give me Tigers versus Mariners in Dyersville, Iowa next year and expect me to be as excited. But there are unique ways to get your audience involved. What I would also say is this. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. If you have any ideas, I want to hear from you. I am all in on this idea of making unique sporting events, making them cool, and helping Major League Baseball. So if you have any thoughts, any opinions, anything unique, anything interesting, feel free, as I said, to hit me up at Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. But in my opinion, there is no reason that Major League Baseball should not capitalize on what came out of this weekend in Dyersville, Iowa. All right, I think that's it for this segment of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Went 20 minutes on Field of Dreams. I'm incredible. But what I want to do now, take a quick break. College hoop season is here, people. And so what I want to do now, take a quick commercial break, come back, and basically just kind of just talk college hoops, right? Or talk college football. I think I said college hoops. But college football season is here. Uh, two Saturdays from now, we will have Nebraska, Illinois. We had some news over the weekend as Notre Dame, Michigan, Kentucky, all named starting quarterbacks. And what I just want to do, give you a quick preview of the SEC prior to Cole Kublick joining me. A lot of interesting storylines in that league. We will take a quick break, come back, talk SEC football. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back. And uh, really fun first segment, I thought, on the Air Tours podcast. 
Field of Dreams game was awesome, and I really do think it's fun to kind of reimagine our sports, our sporting events, and how we consume them. And I really do hope that Major League Baseball takes into consideration other unique ways to get fans engaged the way that they did last Thursday. As I said, we could criticize them for a lot. I thought they did a really good job with that game, and now it's on them to continue to build momentum. And I really do hope that some of these other sports like the NBA, maybe college hoops, maybe the NFL, find unique ways to keep fans engaged as well. But what I do want to do is switch gears because – unbelievably we are so close to the start of college football season blows my mind cannot believe how quickly it is coming up believe it or not we have one Saturday left without college football okay so next Saturday uh, spend time with your wife spend time with your kids spend time with your husband mom dad whatever because starting in two weeks college football begins the 27th or excuse me the 28th is week zero so not a ton on the schedule that day uh, Illinois Nebraska is probably the signature game on that day also clear your schedules my alma mater UConn is playing at Fresno State baby so clear your schedules for that one but a little bit of a quiet week zero but then we go to week one where we just got some mega 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 games Clemson Georgia UCLA LSU Miami Alabama on and on and on and on and on and what I want to do is kind of talk about a few different things. One, this was the first real weekend that we got some real news out of camp. Three marquee programs, uh, Notre Dame, Michigan, as well as Kentucky in the SEC named starting quarterbacks. I want to talk about that. Then what I just want to do, I think over these next couple episodes, we'll start kind of just re-kind of going over some of these conferences, what you missed, what you may have forgotten. We'll start with the SEC today. We'll do some superlatives, favorite, overrated, most interesting thing like that next episode maybe we'll do the big 12 or the big 10 just to get you ready for college football as I always say this is that time of year where you have to kind of recalibrate your game your brain excuse me remind yourself of what happened what you forgot what you missed etc but let's start with the camp news because like I said Games are two weeks away, and this is really the first time that we're really starting to get a feel for what these teams will look like once they take the field. And this week specifically was big from the perspective that three marquee programs, as I said, Notre Dame, Michigan with Jim Harbaugh, always in the news, and Kentucky, uh, all announced starting quarterbacks. So none of them were really surprising, but I just kind of want to get you updated on what happened at each. First of all, at Notre Dame. Talked about Notre Dame last episode. First coaches poll came out last week. Notre Dame coming off a college football playoff appearance. And really, uh, as critical as we are of Notre Dame, they're coming off basically the best three-year stretch in probably 30 years at the school. They made the college football playoff last year, 11 wins the year before, made the college football playoff the year before, 33 wins over the last three seasons. And as I've said many times, I believe that Brian Kelly has this program operating at about as high of a level as anyone could at Notre Dame at this specific moment in time. They have named their starting quarterback, Ian Book, three-year starter, the guy that was under center for all those wins. He has left. He is now with the New Orleans Saints. And in his place is Jack Cohn has won the starting quarterback job. Jack Cohn is a transfer from Wisconsin. And ultimately, as I just said a minute ago, this news is not that surprising. Jack Cohn comes in, fifth-year player at the college level, ton of experience starting at Wisconsin. Ironically, with Notre Dame actually plays Wisconsin this year at Wrigley Field. You talk about a cool one-off game for college football 
they have that with Notre Dame playing Wisconsin at Wrigley Field. But Jack Cohn has been named the starting quarterback. Ultimately, this is what was expected. Uh, he was competing with a true freshman, a redshirt freshman, nobody that has taken significant snaps in college football. But I also don't know that it makes me feel that confident in Notre Dame going forward. And again, I'm not crushed Notre Dame guy, but they lost a ton on offense, not just with Ian Book, but nine starters overall. And so I just think this is a year where a good season for Notre Dame should be nine and three, maybe eight and four. They are not Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State that can just replace a ton of talent. Jack Cohn, from what we saw at Wisconsin, is not a super dynamic quarterback. He's kind of that old school Wisconsin dink dunk handed off to the running backs. And unless he has changed in the last year when he was sitting out at Wisconsin, I'm not sold that he is going to be the guy that makes this offense super dynamic and allows Notre Dame to stay in the college football playoff conversation. Don't criticize Notre Dame when they go 9-3. and three. I really do believe this is just kind of an in-between season. Other big quarterback news comes at Michigan, where Cade McNamara was named the starting quarterback. Again, not surprising if you remember back to last year, Michigan, bizarre season. They destroy Minnesota in week one with Joe Milton at quarterback. The next couple weeks, it starts to fall apart. They lose to Michigan State. They get shut out by Indi uh, Indiana. and or They didn't get shut out, but they got destroyed, excuse me, by Indiana. And eventually, Joe Milton, he has some injuries. They make way to Cade McNamara. He played pretty well well down the stretch they beat Rutgers only other win they had except for against Minnesota could have beaten Penn State and then obviously the last couple games of the season against Ohio State most notably were canceled but Cade McNamara won the job late in the season what's interesting about this he beat out a five-star named J.J. McCarthy, one of the top high school quarterbacks in the country for this starting job. In the world we live in, I don't believe that necessarily a true freshman is going to transfer, but it's obviously, of course, not out of the question. And then the bigger question is, um, you know, what becomes of this position at Michigan? It has been unbelievable. If you just think about the Jim Harbaugh era at Michigan, it has been insane that this guy at one point in his career was known as the quarterback whisperer. Had Andrew Luck at Stanford, developed him into a first overall NFL draft pick. He is the guy that had Alex Smith. You could criticize Jim Harbaugh for a lot, but he got to San Francisco. The place was a complete mess. Got them to the playoffs. Three straight years they made the NFC Championship game, including, of course, the year they made the Super Bowl, lost to the Ravens. But Jim Harbaugh developed Alex Smith, then replaced Alex Smith with Colin Kaepernick. And without getting into a Colin Kaepernick wormhole, he was never the same after Jim Harbaugh left. And so to me, it's amazing that Jim Harbaugh has never been able to develop a quarterback at Michigan. We will see if Cade McNamara is the guy. We will see if ultimately J.J. McCarthy is the guy. But it is just absolutely stunning to me that he has not been able to develop a quarterback. And until he does, it's hard for me to get excited about news like we got on Sunday out of Michigan. Finally, the last guy that's worth noting, uh, Will Levis, who is a quarterback at the University of Kentucky, was named the starting quarterback. News first broken by my buddy Matt Jones. Uh, but again, for the third time in three teams, not surprising. He is a transfer from Penn State. He beat out Joey Gatewood, a one-time transfer from Auburn. But this had basically been expected for people who follow Kentucky. I know we still got a lot of Wildcats fans that listen to this show. Um, Will Levis obviously transferred from Penn State, was recruited specifically by the new offensive coordinator, Liam Cohen. They had a relationship dating back years. He gets there. He comes in for fall camp and does, in fact, 
beat out Joey Gatewood. I saw shortly thereafter Joey Gatewood elected to enter the transfer portal. He's an older player. I don't know that I'm totally surprised. It's a little bit disappointing. But again, not totally surprised that that is the news. And now the interesting thing with Kentucky is, is this really the sign that the offensive passing game is going to evolve? Kentucky was last in the SEC in passing last year. They fire Eddie Grand, As I said, new offensive coordinator with Liam Cohen. And I'm just going to tell you, if it, it's kind of one of those, we're going to talk about all these different teams here in a minute, but this has to be the year that Mark Stoops opens up the offense, and if he does, they have a chance to be really good. The run game is always really good, the defense is always really good at Kentucky, and in a weird year in the SEC East, where Vanderbilt has a new head coach, South Carolina has a new head coach, uh, Tennessee has a new head coach, Florida, who we'll talk about in a minute, is on the way down. There is really room for Kentucky to make a run here. Are they better than Georgia? They're not. But second place in the SEC East, I believe, is absolutely attainable. A nine, potentially ten win regular season is attainable, but you got to open up that offense if you're Mark Stoops, and maybe today is the first sign, or I guess it would be Sunday is the first sign that uh, that that may actually be happening at Kentucky. But like I said, you look at the schedule, it is pretty manageable. You do have LSU in a cross-division game, but there is a chance for 8-8, eight, eight, oh, eight, 9, potentially 10 wins. All right, really what quickly what I want to do, Cole Kublik is coming up, uh, and we're going to nerd out on, on football in general. And Cole, like I said, is one of those guys that just, he loves college football. You can hear the passion in his voice, and he's become a really good friend of mine. Before we get to him, though, we talk about a lot of SEC football. Just wanted to do a quick SEC football reset before we get to Cole Kublik. As I said, maybe this is a scenario where over the next couple weeks, we hit on one conference a week leading up to the start of the season. I want to start with the SEC, and I think what we'll do is superlatives. I'm not going to break down, you know, Mississippi State's depth chart and what about um, Missouri's wide receiver depth. Like, that, that's not what we do. That's not what we're about. We like to have fun. We like to keep it loose. And what I want to do now is some SEC superlatives. The best, the worst, the most interesting, the most unique, whatever. And we will start with the superlative. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Who is the favorite in the SEC? Uh, for the millionth year in a row, it is the Alabama Crimson Tide. Absolutely shocking, I know. And what's really interesting about Alabama, I talked to my buddy Ryan Fowler, who hosts radio in Tuscaloosa. I talked to him on uh, this week on Fox Sports Radio. He said that he actually believes this might be the most talented Alabama team from about 1 to 60 that they have ever had in the Nick Saban era, which is absolutely mortifying. Now, he readily admits because of the transfer portal, 1 through 85, probably not as deep as it once was. And certainly there are questions because if you look at Alabama, they lost Mac Jones at quarterback. They lost Najee Harris at running back. They lost Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell at wide receiver. And more importantly, they lost every coach off of their offensive staff, most notably Steve Sarkeesian. And so when I look at this team, I'm not saying Alabama's not going to win the SEC because if I had to pick a team today, I'd probably pick Alabama. But if there was ever a year to catch them, this does kind of feel like it. It will be fascinating to see what happens with Alabama. They are still the favorite with good reason. They lose a ton, though. And that, to me, is the most interesting thing, maybe even about the SEC this year. Is there any way that they take a step back? Because we know how tough some of these other teams in the division are. Alabama, of course, the overwhelming favorite. Bryce Young from just down the road where I live in Pasadena, is the starting quarterback for Alabama this year. The second favorite, and to me this is just a fascinating team, 
and I've talked about him a ton, it's the University of Georgia. And I know if you listen to this podcast, I have been crushing Kirby Smart forever, and I think it's mostly justified. I mean, I mean, you lose all these big games to Alabama and LSU and the games that really matter, you're going to get crushed. But what I've also said all summer long is that they really built some momentum late in the season when JT Daniels was put in at quarterback, and it really does feel like if this is not the year at Georgia, I just don't know if it will ever happen, and let me explain why. One, they finally have the quarterback. JT Daniels, 31-plus points in each of their last three regular season games. They have the running game, they have the defense, and they have added depth in the offseason through the transfer portal. Starting cornerback from West Virginia, another DB from uh, Auburn, I believe, no, excuse me, another DB from uh, Clemson, Darion Kendrick. Now, Eric Gilbert, uh, actually, Kirby Smart announced that he was not with the team this weekend dealing with a personal issue. Assuming that he does, in fact, come back, he is a difference maker, former five-star tight end slash wide receiver. He'll be playing more wide receiver at Georgia this year, but they're loaded. They're really good, and here's the other catch. One, I just told you, the SEC East is down this year. That is an important variable in all this. Florida should be a little bit down. Tennessee is obviously going through a transition, South Carolina, etc. But you also look at their cross-division games, and in the SEC, that's what matters. Who are you playing from the other division, especially when you're in the East and especially when you don't have to play LSU, Alabama, Texas A&M, and all that. Uh, and their cross-division games are very manageable. They play Arkansas, and they also play Auburn. Now, Auburn, of course, is a heated rival, but Auburn has a new head coach in Brian Harson, and they play them relatively early the second weekend in October, and you think that would be advantage. So, to me... I look at Georgia, it feels like this has to be the year. You got to get to the playoff. You got to compete for a championship. The interesting thing is, we should find out early how good they are. They open with Clemson in week one. How about that? Georgia Clemson, the first Saturday night of college football. Looking across the, the rest of the superlatives, the most intriguing team, in my opinion, is the LSU Tigers. And I've talked a lot about LSU. I've thrown out the stats. Last year, you can understand why things did not go as planned. They had 14 players drafted off that national championship team, most notably Joe Burrow. On top of that, you lose a ton of players via the opt-out situation early last year. Jamar Chase, a future top 10 pick, opted out. Tyler Shelvin, a defensive lineman who was later drafted by the NFL, opted out. And so you could understand why LSU would be a little bit disappointing going into the season, but they went 5-5. Five and five. And most notably, the defense was abysmal. Now, what makes LSU interesting is a couple things. One, they return a ton of talent. That's one. Two, as bad as the defense was, Bo Pelini is out. They have a new defensive staff in. And it'll be really interesting to see how they manage this team now that they have a new defense. And three, you just look at them. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, everything's just set up better. Now, what is also worth noting with LSU Miles Brennan, a projected potential starter quarterback, got hurt, but many people, including Cole Kublik, and we'll talk about this in a minute, he didn't even believe that uh, Miles Brennan was going to win the starting job. Max Johnson, he believed, was going to win the starting job, but to me, LSU is the most intriguing. People were talking about them as a dark horse playoff contender. I find it kind of hard to believe that a defense can improve that much year over year, season over season, where they are now going to be in a playoff conversation, but they are certainly the most intriguing. Most interesting question mark going into the year. Drum roll, please. I forgot to do some drum rolls. It is Texas A&M's quarterback, okay? And here's why. Texas A&M, another team, really good 
last year, excuse me, finished fifth in the college football playoff standings, crushed UNC in the Orange Bowl. They return a ton. They return a star running back in Isaiah Spiller, a really special wide receiver in Anaya Smith, another really good wide receiver who got hurt, Caleb Chapman, tight end Jalen Weidemeyer, and they also return nine starters on defense. The big question, who's playing at quarterback? Again, we'll ask Cole Kublik, but they got a kid named Haynes King who's kind of a dual threat, former four-star guy, and if they get the quarterback situation figured out with Jimbo Fisher, that is a team I truly believe can compete at the top of the SEC, potentially for an SEC championship. Now, the big question with them, and Cole Kublik said it. Cole Kublik will say it coming up. Cole Kublik basically said, look, uh, you know, at some point you got to be competitive with Bama. They don't only, only lose to Bama, they got to be competitive, but their quarterback situation is so interesting. AM, a fascinating question mark. Who is the team that your boy Torres is selling? Who is Torres selling? Well, I'm selling the Florida Gators. I've talked a ton about them this offseason. What I would tell you with Florida is this. I've said it a million times, but they went 8-4 and four last year, lost their last three games, last two of the regular season. That included a loss to LSU as a 24-point favorite at home. They lose in the SEC championship game to Bama. No shame in that. But they finished 8-4 and four overall. And they finished 8-4 and four overall with a veteran quarterback in Kyle Trask with a top-five pick in Kyle Pitts at tight end slash wide receiver and another first-rounder, Kadarius Toney. Teron Grimes as well was really good. If you went 8-4 and four last year with all those guys, what are you going to do with a new quarterback and with no Kyle Pitts? That is my concern. I'm also, uh, it's also worth noting they play Alabama in the regular season. This is the year they get Alabama. Bad year to be a Florida Gator. I think they're the team that takes the step back. Uh, the team that has just a long year ahead, I hate to say it, it is the Tennessee Vols. I actually feel bad for Tennessee fans. I mean, listen, we know that they were cheating their you-know-what's-off, Jeremy Pruitt, McDonald's bags, backpacks full of cash, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as I said on last episode, you know, if Jeremy Pruitt could have just survived one more year, there's no extra benefits violations anymore. Name image likeness is here. You could pay players above board. So we will never know what would happen, but Jeremy Pruitt was out. The locker room was clearly toxic. Josh Heupel is in. And the one report we keep getting out of training camp is that the players seem to really like the new coaching staff. So I'm intrigued in the long term. I'm intrigued with what Tennessee is going to do with these NCAA rules violations. But I would also say it's going to be really hard this year. They got crushed by the transfer portal. Their top two running backs, Eric Gray and Ty Chandler, left for Oklahoma and UNC respectively. Their two starting offensive tackles, One's at Oklahoma, one's at Texas A&M right now. They're two best linebackers. One's at Michigan State and one's at Alabama right now. They just lost so much. And as good as Josh Heupel is at calling plays, designing offenses, I think it'll be a long year. Take overs in the Tennessee game. I think they'll be able to score a lot. I think they're going to give up a lot. It's just going to be a long year. Final couple ones. First of all, this is my I like but team. The team that I like but is Arkansas. I like Arkansas but I don't like their schedule. And if you have not seen, first of all, Arkansas, incredible job by Sam Pittman last year at 1.3-3 overall, finished 3-7 and seven down the stretch, got a little bit worn down. Um, but it was just an incredible year because this was a program that had not won a single SEC game in the previous two seasons leading up to last year. So Sam Pittman comes in, they go 3-7, and seven, and they actually bring back a lot of talent. I really do like the talent at Arkansas, but what I don't like is the schedule. Last year, they had the toughest schedule regular season-wise in the history of college football, Alabama getting Florida, 
Ohio State and Notre Dame uh, in the SEC championship game in the playoff, probably put it over the top. But last year, uh, Arkansas had a brutal schedule. This year, it's not any easier. Here's who they play. They play Texas A&M at home in week two. They play their normal rivalry game against Texas A&M in Dallas. Then how about this? They play at Georgia in a crossover game, at Alabama, at LSU, and in a game that won't be easy, they play at Ole Miss, who we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, it's just it's just a brutal schedule. And I, I trust Sam Pittman. I like what he's built. I like how aggressive he's been uh, in coaching and recruiting. He is obviously a player, a coach that the players love, that they believe in, that they bought into last year. But, man, Texas at home in Week 2, then A&M in Dallas, then Georgia, Alabama, and LSU. I like Arkansas, but I don't like that schedule. Final team, the most entertaining team. Don't know how much they're going to win. It's Lane Kiffin. And if you missed last episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast, I had on Hugh Freeze. Love Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze, of course, is the former Ole Miss coach. Liberty plays Ole Miss later this season. And we talked a lot about Lane Kiffin. He's a little bit crazy on Twitter, but he is an incredible uh, play caller. And this was a team that scored 39 points per game last year, second in the SEC behind only Alabama, who, of course, won a national championship. Why do I bring it up? It is because, oh, uh, they also gave up close to 40 a game last year when, uh, when, when push came to shove against an all-SEC schedule. So the good thing for Ole Miss, if they could just play a little bit of defense – I'm telling you, this is a chance that can be a 7-8-9 win team, I think, in that division. I don't think they're going to beat Alabama A&M and everybody, but they are a team that is going to be very intriguing in terms of what they can potentially do uh, when it comes to a win-loss record. They also have a manageable cross-division schedule. They actually play at Tennessee, so Lane Kiffin will return to, to Rocky Top, and they play Vanderbilt. So this is a really intriguing team. They are certainly the most entertaining after scoring close to 40 points per game. All right, I've talked long enough. Let's get out of here. Uh, Cole Kublick is going to be joining me momentarily. And Cole, as I've said a few times in this show, um, just a, a couple things. Good friend, a guy that I think we really bonded at this time last year when there was real thought that we were not going to play college football. Um, but Cole Kublick will be joining me momentarily. And it's just a great interview. If you are ready for college football, if you are ready to nerd out, this is the conversation for you as Cole Kublick from ESPN SEC Network. We talk everything. We talk Georgia. We talk LSU. We talk A&M. We talk Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. Really fun conversation with Cole Kublick. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do it for your boy, Torres. iTunes, the podcast addict app. If you have an Android Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, but it really does help us move up those iTunes charts. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. The YouTube channel is blowing up. We're over 5,000 subscribers on YouTube, so make sure that you are subscribed there. But that is all for this segment. Shout out to Torn Craig. Shout out to Rachel Who Hates My Voice. If all goes to plan, another mega guest later this week. Keep Stay tuned on that. But for now, let's get to Cole Kublick, ESPN. All right, joining me via Zoom, good friend of mine, 
you know, a year ago, we were uh, we didn't even know what was going on. I was thinking about you the other day, Cole Kublik. You came on right before, uh, you know, an unfortunate announcement from the Big Ten in early August. A year later, college football is back like it never left. How you doing, man? What's going on? I'm doing great. I'm excited. Excited about the season. Excited that we got a season in last year. I can remember being on the podcast a little over a year ago, and uh, the, the constant conversation at that point seemed to be, why will they play? Why should they play? Can they play? Will they play? And, and there weren't many guys like you and I that, that sat back and said, this is going to happen. We're going to get this done. We're going to find a way. Um, no matter how many conferences or how many teams it is, there, there are going to be some that are just going to do it because they're going to figure it out. And thankfully we did. I, I know it wasn't the exact season that probably the majority of teams in college football wanted. You look at what the Pac-12 did, what the MAC did. They, they didn't get everything in that they probably wish they could have, especially the players. But hoping to get back to more normalcy this fall, closer to a normal college football season that we all anticipate once we get there here in, what, 16 days, I think. Yeah, real quick, Cole, of course, the host of uh, McElroy and Kublik, 7 to 10 Central Time, SEC Network, SEC Network Radio. Uh, first, first of all, how's the new radio show going? I, I got a chance to listen to you and McElroy a little bit. Of course, Greg McElroy, former Alabama quarterback. I feel like, you know, my buddy Rob Parker and Chris Broussard are the odd couple. I feel like you guys are the odd couple 2.0 down there in Alabama with <laughs> a Bama guy, a uh, Auburn guy, an O-lineman, a quarterback. How's the show going? It's going great. It's a lot of fun. It's been nonstop college football talk, and that's the best part about it, especially being in Birmingham the best college football market in the country um, to be able to sit next to a brilliant football mind each and every day is going to challenge me. It's been fantastic. So I'm saying nice things just because, you know, we're sitting here right now. Oh, okay. You know, okay. Yeah. All right. So I gotta be nice. I gotta, I gotta be nice to the co-host since he's sitting in here uh, working oh, on man. some, working on some Mississippi state film for tomorrow's show. So. Okay. Okay. So I was going to ask, is Mississippi state the first game on your sec schedule or you're just, you're just getting no. ready to show prep. No, we've been running like a, a film study team of the day every day. Okay. So we just kind of pick a team and we started out with, with top five teams and then kind of moved down a little bit, you know, North Carolina, Iowa State, teams like that. And then we just kind of now have moved into the Southeastern Conference teams because we want to make sure that we get all those out of the way. Did UAB on Tuesday, we're going to probably roll SEC teams in to the beginning of the season because what you know once we get into late next week and then the following week it's all going to be actual game preview so trying to knock out all the sec teams before the action finally gets here all right well i was going to start with some thirty thousand foot uh texas oklahoma stuff but let's do the opposite because you know you just brought up some individual teams and there were some that i was going to ask you about at the end but let's just jump right into it uh georgia i mean it's the narrative every year but it feels like this really feels like it might be the year florida's a little bit down jt daniels is back at quarterback don't know if you've done the extensive extensive breakdown yet but uh what are your initial thoughts man because i know every year we say it but it really feels like this has to be the year for georgia i think this is their best chance i think it's kirby smart's best chance to win a national championship you think too everything that alabama has to replace New offensive line coach, new offensive coordinator, obviously new quarterback. You lose a Heisman Trophy winner at receiver. You lose maybe the best tailback in school history. A couple offensive linemen. They'll have to you know kind of rework that group up front. They won the Joe Moore Award last year. So even not only their schedule, which Clemson, then kind of Florida in the middle of the schedule, and then you'd probably look at Alabama in the SEC championship game, it does line up well. 
And I think the biggest difference that you'll see is Coach Munkin, the offensive coordinator, they know who they can be now. They know exactly what they're going to be. This time last year, you had Jamie Newman roll down from Wake Forest, and he practices for a couple of months, and then two weeks before the season, he walks away. Well, I mean, that dude basically committed a heist against first-team reps. He just stole them out of the building. Well, then you go to Dewan Mathis, a super talented freshman. You get to Arkansas. He's not quite ready. You have to turn it over to a walk-on in Stetson Bennett. And then you're basically waiting for JT to be healthy or ready, and you insert him late in the season. So I don't know if they ever knew exactly what they were going to be offensively as far as their personality, their identity, what they could and couldn't handle at the quarterback position. And I think that was a bit of a juggling act a lot of times as well. So they just kind of leaned on the run. When that worked, they were pretty good. When it didn't work, they weren't so good. But now I think they know what JT's going to be able to do, his strengths, what he's going to be able to do at the line of scrimmage, pre-snap, post-snap. And I think that gives them a huge advantage. They want to go a little bit faster at times. They want to try to create more explosive plays. That was the ultimate goal in the offseason is become more explosive. I didn't think Eric Gilbert was going to be able to be eligible, but looks like he's practicing. He's with the team. It's only another dimension that they're going to add to be difficult to deal with. I think one of the things about this Georgia team that will give them some big advantages this year is not just quarterback, not just JT Daniels, but physicality. I mean, they have some monsters at certain positions. Adam Anderson is going to play star, which is a hybrid safety linebacker position. He's 6'5", 240. And the guy's going to wow. essentially going to be playing some John safety. Taylor. And yeah. Jordan, Jordan Davis inside a defensive tackle, they got 6'6", 350. Uh, you got a Marius Mims coming in as a freshman tackle, who I think is going to play you know, 6'7", 330. Darnell Washington at tight end, who, by the way, his body fat's probably under 12%. He's 6'7", 280 pounds. Jeez. So wow. they, I, I just think that this team is, in, like I said, with, if Gilbert goes to receiver, now you're talking about a 6'4", 6'5", 230-pound wide receiver that's going to be a physical mismatch as well. They are going to be able to provide physical matchup problems all across the field. Doesn't mean they'll win every game. Doesn't mean they'll be better than every team they play. But that's just another facet of what they bring to the table. They're loaded at running back. They're loaded at tight end. I think they're deeper at receiver than people give them credit for, even though they haven't had really a breakout guy. They don't have the true number one without George Pickens, but I think they can manage around it. And then up front, one of the best defensive lines in college football, you feel, you feel the needs in the secondary with Tyke Smith coming down from West Virginia. You pulled another corner in from Clemson, so you've kind of addressed those needs. I think it's their best chance that they've had. The schedule lines up. You've got the personnel. They just have to go execute and make the in-game adjustments and obviously show up for some big games because they're going to get one right out of the gate, and they're probably going to get another big one in the SEC championship game. Let me ask you a dumb question as a former player. Do you believe that within that program there is any type of internal block or whatever when it comes to big games, or is it just they played a historically great LSU team a few years ago in the SEC title game? They played two great Bama teams, one of which obviously won the national championship against them. Is it a, a, is it a mental block, or is it just – excuse my language, but shit, man, sometimes you just run into another really good team across you, you know what I'm saying? I, I think it's just a lot of that is just running into better football teams. Um, you know, especially like you mentioned in 2019, just nobody was stopping that offense. It just, it, you just weren't. Um, and then, you know, the buzzsaw that has been a couple of those Alabama teams that they've run into 
those teams probably a little bit more talented top to bottom. Therefore, they just had they had better guys step up and make plays when they had to. Um, I think because of the turnover every year, Aaron, that you're probably not going to get. Sure. I don't think that that stays annually. Um, now, if you want to talk about, you know, one team over the course of a year or maybe even one to the next, but three, four, five years down the road, I just I don't think that that stays inside your football facility because too many things are different from the coaching staff to the players to just the way things operate. I mean, look at everything that's changed this offseason in college football. So I just don't think that something like that can find its way into your facility and just be omnipresent. I just I, I'm not buying that's that. True. So another team I wanted to get your opinion on, um, team I might see in person week one, LSU. Um, you know, there's a you mentioned LSU a minute ago, historically great 2019. Last year they lost everybody, weird COVID offseason, no spring, no, you know, non-traditional summer. I'm hearing a lot of like LSU dark horse playoff, dark horse SEC. I just that defense was so bad. And I know Bo Pelini's out and there's a new staff and all that stuff. Just a dumb question for a forward player. Can a defense improve that much year over year to go from literally like one of the two or three worst in college football to good enough to really compete at a level that they're going to need to compete at to win the way some people think they can win? When you have their talent, you can. Okay. Because that thing, that thing wasn't about ability last year. It, it was about how it was managed more so than anything else, and it was managed in an egregious manner a lot of the time. Now, you bring maybe the best player in college football back in Derek Stingley, and it's just everybody talks all about LSU and different things they have, don't have, why can they, why can't they? And we just a lot of times forget that that guy might be the best college football player in the country this year. Um, Eli Ricks played good at corner last year. Jay Ward's back at safety played some pretty good football for them. Cordell Flott has played nickel and corner. He can move around and do some different things. Uh, I think you look up front, you got a couple of big body prototypical SEC defensive tackles. Neil Farrow, Glenn Logan have played a lot in this league. Ali Gay can get it off the edge. B.J. Olazari can get it off the edge. You bring Mike Jones in at linebacker from Clemson, and Navantique Strong was the number one junior college defensive linebacker in the country. He'll be plugged in and ready to go there as well. Offensively, I had Max Johnson as a starter either way. So, no, from a depth perspective, this can't be good. But I actually think him getting all the reps with the ones, kind of going back to what we talked about with Georgia, if he stays healthy, may end up benefiting LSU down the road. Um, four of your five starters back on the offensive line. Ed Ingram's got a chance to be one of the best guards in the country. I don't think Austin Deculus is one of the best tackles in the country, but it feels like he's been starting for eight years. So he brings a ton of experience. And Liam Shanahan started at center for him last year, the Harvard transfer. He'll be back starting for him again this year. Um, I think Cole Taylor is going to be a breakout breakout player on offense in the SEC this year. Big 6'7", 250-pound tight end that LSU is going to throw to the table. Keyshawn Boutte has more receiving yards in a game than any SEC player in the history of the league. So I I think that the the talent is there. The weapons are there. The players are there. If they buy into and get back to what they know that they were doing before, mainly two years ago, offensively and defensively, there's enough ability for them to make that big leap and to be a much better football team, a much better defense than they were last year. So, you know, you just take two teams in the same division. Could Ole Miss take that leap? No, I think they can take a step. Can LSU take a giant leap on that side of the ball? Yeah, I think they can because they have takeover guys. 
mean, they have a corner that you don't want to go near. They have pass rushers that can take over a game. Uh, they have linebackers that I think can make plays if a lot of other people on their defense is wrong. Those are the kind of things that you need defensively if you're going to go from being average or not good to being a hell of a lot better. It's wild just how nice it is to just talk actual on the field. I, I was thinking about <laughs> dumb conversations we had this time last year. Not dumb. They were important at the time. Uh, last little one for you, and then we'll get to some big picture stuff, get you out of here. Uh, A&M, what do you know about the quarterback? For people who don't know, A&M basically returns like all their skill position guys, their whole defense, uh, but nobody knows anything about this quarterback. What do you know about him? Are they really a contender? Because because all the I was just on AM radio 10 minutes before you and I joined each other here, uh, and they're fired up for the season. What do we know about their quarterback? They should be. It, it'll be Haynes King or Zach Calzada. Calzada, a little bit of a stronger arm, a little bit more of your prototypical pocket passer who can really push the ball down the field. Haynes King will give you more mobility, guy with a little more wiggle that you could probably – utilize as far as his escapability, maybe take advantage of some of his mobility. Uh, Coach's kid, who everybody says has completely dived into the playbook since he's been on campus and love his mentality, love his leadership ability. But I think it'll be a tough call for Jimbo because he has two guys that have skill sets that differ to an extent, but both can probably give you things that are going to help you go out and win games. There's a lot around them to be really excited about. Uh, we know Jalen Weidermeyer tight end, but Baylor Cup's a guy that's been banged up that we've been waiting to come on, a guy that's another physical mismatch that has the speed to really stretch the field. Devon A-Chain and Nia Smith are two different players that can line up all over the place. And with Spiller in the backfield, I would expect to see a lot of two-back stuff from Jimbo, maybe more pre-snap motion to be able to find mismatches with those guys. And then I think, too, the offensive line, I don't believe takes as big of a step back as a lot of other people do. Jameer Johnson transfers in from Tennessee. Layden Robinson at guard. If you watched him when he came in at South Carolina because of an injury last year, he was dominant in that game. And then Kenyon Green, who might be the most talented offensive lineman in the league, is going to kick out the tackle. He comes back. You get a Matthews kid at center. I'm never going to doubt a kid named Matthews in a football uniform because yeah. I feel like there's been 700 of them, and they've all been great when they've played. So I think that position is going to be fine you got a great defensive line to lean on on that side of the ball. Don't love the linebacker core, but I do think they have one of the better secondaries in the SEC. And they obviously have a coach on that side of the ball who knows how to get it done as well. So I think A&M's right there in the mix in the West. Does that mean they're going to overtake Alabama? they got to be competitive with Alabama before they beat Alabama. They ain't talking about beating them. Mm -hmm. you got to be competitive first. Show that you can stay on the field for four quarters, not two, and then get run in the second half. I mean, that, that, those games the last five years have been blowouts. You've got to find a way to be competitive there first. And then obviously a lot of teams in the West are either not going away or taking a step. Like, I don't know if Auburn's going to be a lot better, but they're going to be different. And I don't think they go away. I think state's offense is better. I think the Ole Miss offense will be just as dangerous and the defense will take a baby step and be a little bit better. Uh, I think Arkansas is going to be about the same. They're not going backwards, but you know, they, they lose, I believe their most important player on defense that knows and then obviously you lose a quarterback that had a lot of experience and did a good job. And LSU, as we just talked about, is going to take a step in Alabama's the, the favorite to win the national championship. So it's still a tough division. So just to ask A&M to be back and be in the same spot and maybe win the division on top of that is a lot because Jimbo's still building it. But I do think they have the capabilities to be in the conversation late in the season. The schedule plays out really nice. We could easily be talking about A&M ain't no playing Bama. And we could easily be talking about them 
I think it would be 10 and one playing LSU. Either one of those scenarios, a really good place to be if you're Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher. Very good. Um, it could be A&M. It could be somebody else. But a coach's poll comes out on Wednesday of, of last week. By the time people listen to this, top five is what everybody thought. Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Georgia. I don't know if that was the exact. Not word, everybody. But... Not everybody thought okay. that. So that was my question. That was my question. Is there anybody on the outside that can, at the very least, make the playoff? And if not, even take it a step further, have an LSU two, three years ago, I, they were ranked in the top 10, but nobody saw a national championship before the season. Maybe you did because you're a genius. But uh, anybody that's outside that top five that you feel really good about, we're going to be talking about late November, early December in the playoff conversation? Um, outside the top five. Um, you, know, you just said I, not everybody. So I, I assume well, you had I, did, I wouldn't have Ohio State in my top five. Is why okay. I mean, you said everybody had the okay. top five okay. that way. I don't think I would have had it there. I would have either – I would have probably the same top three and then Georgia would be in my top five. And then I would debate A&M or Iowa state probably at five okay. ahead of Ohio state. I think there is an opportunity for a PAC 12 team to be in the mix. So if you looked at USC at 14 or Oregon at 12, the, especially Oregon being at Ohio state week two, they win that game. All of a sudden, they're in it. We can talk about every other scenario in the book. They're in the conversation. They're in the discussion. If they get that win at that place. And then you have some other games that are on the schedule. Um, you look at – I think Michigan is on the schedule. Um, Texas A&M is on the schedule for Colorado. There are a couple of non-conference games that the conference could really help themselves. Sure. If they get a few of those. They're not going to get them all. But if they could get a few of them, uh, like Colorado has A&M and Minnesota, I think. Like they get one or both of those, all of a sudden conference perception is going to go up. Um, so I think, I think if you get a couple of those games, and if if Oregon beats Ohio State, they're in the mix. USC would be a team that I think has a chance to maybe find their Washington's an outside team. I don't think that Washington's a team that can really push for a playoff spot. So outside the top five, I would probably say Iowa State would be one to keep an eye on. And I would say Oregon and USC would be the other two because I don't think their path is as difficult for Oregon. That would be once they get past Ohio State, if they can. And then, two, if their conference finds a way to get a couple of those non-con wins early, that'll shift the perception of what the Pac-12 is. But it's going to be tough this year more so because you look at the SEC, Bama, Georgia, A&M, whoever, SEC champions probably in. Clemson looks like they've got a, a path paved. They could lose to Georgia, go win their conference, and they're going to be in. Um, and then I think, obviously, Oklahoma, we all believe, is the Big 12 favorite. They're probably going to be in, and they'll have a chance to drop a game maybe to an Iowa State and then get them again in the championship game and still find their way in. So now, even with the Notre Dame maybe lurking somewhere, how many spots are there to go up and grab and go up and take? And I think that's where – a team that comes out of nowhere, you either got to be that much better than everybody else or there have to be some spots that open up for you to find a way to squeak in. And it just doesn't look like there's going to be a ton of those spots open up. So they're going to, if somebody's going to do it, Aaron, they're going to have to be a dominant team start yep. to finish. Like Oregon's going to have to start strong. They're going to have to look good against Ohio State, beat Ohio State, and look good in just about every other game and win the Pac-12 if they're going to find their way in. Very good. Last one. And I was going to lead with this. I was just curious, you know, we spent so much time for two, two and a half weeks with the Texas, Oklahoma stuff. And 
you know, my kind of general talking point is I get like the SEC has to do it. Oklahoma and Texas, clearly it makes sense for them. You said you're 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 based in Birmingham, number one college football market in America. I'm sure Bama fans are fired up just to get two more marquee teams on the schedule without a fear in the world that they're going to lose to anybody. But in general, what has been the reaction? I, I'm just curious because I think, you know, it's easy to say, I, like, I would say this. I think the administrators have to say all the right things. The coaches have to say all the right things. But I know there's fans at Missouri, at Tennessee, at Arkansas, at Ole Miss that that can't be happy or aren't. I don't know about can't be happy, but just have to be concerned that their path to whatever they're capable of being is now that much harder. I know most everybody that listens to you are Auburn and Alabama fans, but I'm just curious what the reaction has been. Again, it makes sense for the SEC as a whole, but for some of the individual schools, I just kind of sit there and say, man, their path just got even harder than it already was. I think most people on the surface are excited about better games. Sure. And then I think there's also a bit of maybe it's excitement, maybe it's relief of inclusion that you're in that conference is going to be considered to be the best. And that's probably going to allow you to keep up moving forward just because of what the revenue is going to be and what you're going to be able to bring home every year. But I think that in this, not just, not just Missouri, Arkansas, South Carolina fans, I think, there are Alabama fans, there are Georgia fans, there are Auburn fans, Florida fans that have called into our show, and they're a little bit concerned about where college football might be heading. They don't want it to become, they want to keep a little bit of regionalization in college football. They want to keep traditional matchups. They want to keep rivalries. They want to be able to go to the games on a regular basis when they're not being played at home. And I think there's some familiarity too that we all have grown accustomed to and that we love about college football that they don't want to see go away. So I think at first, everybody's really excited about what those two teams are going to bring to the league. Everybody knows it's going to make for a better regular season, knows you're going to get more premier matchups throughout the course of the year. No matter which one of those teams you are, you're, you're going to get some better games no matter what, because the reality is you're probably going to go up another conference game, which is good, which means you're going to get a better game each and every week. But I think that there are people that are scared and that don't want, and that would publicly push back if you said, hey, we're going to two super conferences. We're going to three or four mega conferences. Um, they don't want NFL light. They love the discussion of why is this conference better than that conference? Why should this team be in with that schedule as opposed to this team with an extra loss being with their schedule? That's part of, I think, of what we all believe has made college football great and we can all say we want to we want it settled on the field and settle on the field, but that subtracts a lot of our conversation <laughs> if that sure. happens. And a lot of the conversation is what's made it so damn good for so long. Yep. So I do think that there is a, a slight hesitancy from not just SEC fans, but a lot of college football fans that say, hold on, where are we going with this? Because I think you have I think you have two massive questions right now as it pertains to the future of college football. Number one would be, when does the dust settle on all of this? Whatever's happening. If we're going to two mega conferences, four super conferences, or if we're done, we don't know when that is. Is it 2025? Is it 2030, 2035, 2040, 2042? Like, when do we sit back on your podcast one day and say, this is what college football is probably going to look like for the next 10 or 15 years? 
none of us have any idea. And then the next question would be, whatever the next step down, the next tier, the next level of college football is, after that dust settles, so if it's group of five, if it's the next group, if it's division six, however you formulate that or classify that, can you come up with a sustainable system that generates revenue consistently to be able to operate under? Because you heard the people tell me I was an idiot for saying FCS should stay in spring. Well, guess what happens if we keep going that direction? FCS pay games are going to be gone because the inventory is too valuable. So they're all going to want to play each other. And if these group of whatever's pull away, they don't want anything to do with the other teams most of the time because they want to generate their own money. That's why they're leaving anyway, because it's ours. So we're going to keep it instead of share it with teams that they don't really deem responsible for how they generate ratings or a champion or money. So if you're at that next tier and you may, maybe now there's only one pay game to go around per year for most teams, or even take it to two, how many FCS games are those going to be? And if it goes to 12 team playoff, that's going to make it fewer and fewer as well, because you're going to want to up the ante on your schedule to be able to afford a few losses, to be able to get in. And then even the, then where do the, the group of five teams fall in there, they're probably going to get a first shot on some of those non-con games before FCS teams are. But the group of five games are going to be stripped away. So if not every team can get the games that they need to build a weight room, put lights on their practice field, to have an actual indoor facility, or just to pay their coaching salaries. I mean, there, there was some math that came out from Dennis Dodd last week talking about the Big 12 going from 28 to maybe less than nine per year. Well, TCU's head coach makes 6.2. Yes, yes. And you're getting nine? Mm-hmm. So, again, you have to – you they're, they're going to have to be able to find a way at the next level, whatever that is, to have a sustainable revenue-generating system to survive. Or else you will see a very – it's going to be very different anyway – but you're going to see a tremendous, I'm talking totally different galaxy of football at the next level because of what they're not going to make. I mean, you can't, you can't stay on that bottle for too long. Mm-hmm. It's at it, it, some time mom stops giving you the formula and you got to go find your own food. Interesting. And yeah. that's, make, make no, I mean, make no mistake here. I mean, the, the, the group of five and FCS to an extent has been living off of what the power five has been giving them for a long time. And mm-hmm. I want it all to stay. I think there's enough to go around. I think there should be enough. I mean, Mark Rick said it when he was still the head coach at Georgia. Guys, there's enough money to go around for us to help these programs, help them survive, help their sustainability. My point is this, Aaron, if we're heading that direction that everyone's scared of, or a lot of people are scared of, some people love it. Some people tell you, NFL light, bring it. I want it. I want the best teams, best games every week. You have the West, we'll take the East, we'll meet in the middle, play a national championship game every year, boom, done. Okay, it's fine. And if we're heading there, then you know the non-con games are going down. Because what do you do when the next TV deal comes around and you have to increase it even more? Well, the only thing left is better inventory. How do you get better inventory? The better teams all play each other. So my biggest, maybe my biggest question, even bigger than where we're headed with all this and when the dust settles, will be whatever the next level of college football is, what can you devise 
that is going to be able to sustain a legitimate level of revenue year after year after year. Because don't say we won't watch it. The people who just sit back and say, oh, well, I ain't got time for that. I ain't watching that. You're telling me Coastal and Liberty and Louisiana and BYU and App State, like you weren't watching that playoff last year? Hell yes, you were. Sure. That would have been damn good football. I would have loved to have seen it. But the point being, there's going to be there's going to come a real conflicting time when if we go to 12, but then there's also that next level that might need to do something on their own to generate that revenue, where do we stand? Because if we pull way far away, those top 16, 24, 32, 48 teams are going to be operating at such a different mm-hmm. level. There might not be any point to having 12 teams. So we don't know where we're going. And that's why I think those two questions are the biggest as it pertains to the future of college football. Well, and we'll get out of here, but that that's just one thing that I've noticed is the not really even a pushback, but a confusion on what a 12, like what are we going to do with set up a 12 team playoff for when there might be three conferences by the time we get to, you know, 2028 or whatever. So I should have led with that because that would have led to a lot of other good stuff rather than just talking LSU and Georgia. But Cole Kublik, uh, uh, McElroy and Kublik, 7 to 10 Central, SEC Network. What's your first game this year, by the way? Did you t- say it already? I we, forget. We don't We don't have our – well, they haven't been announced, so I'm not going to say it because I don't okay. want to make anybody mad. So, but, yeah, it will be um, – we will, we will be um, – we'll hmm. be covering SEC football very early. Um, the SEC okay. Wiccan crew, myself, Tom Jordan, uh, will be on a, a, a will be on an SEC game very soon, as okay. soon as possible. I'll say that. I, okay, all right. I'm going to have to go home and uh, analyze some schedules now. I know I know <laughs> who, who's playing when, but I don't know about week two, week three. Cole, dude, you got to run. You got Mississippi State film. I got some stuff to take care of. Thank you for the time. We will do it Absolutely. again soon, my man. Always enjoy it, man. Anytime you need me.